This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. J&J's highly anticipated single-dose COVID-19 vaccine may not be authorized for use until March. So that's weeks later than U.S. officials have suggested. But so, it's not that far off, Carol. No, but you know, as every day goes by, you're so good at like counting the numbers of the deaths that we see and people who come down with it. So, you know, simple math. That could be, you know what I mean? Like every day yeah. that goes by. I'm not trying to. No, I mean, look, it's important. We do the, the bite of the day here on the radio. And on, on Quick Take, we do by the numbers. And the number today was, you know, over 4,600. And yeah. that's the number of deaths yesterday. It's, it's just, pretty re- it's, it's remarkable. pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. And if we take a look at numbers, right now we've got cases of uh, COVID-19 topping now uh, 91 million. Deaths are passing 1.96 million. That's a global number. And the vaccine tracker, more than 30.5 million shots have been given worldwide. Lots going on. Let's see what our guest has to say about all of this. Dr. Kirk Garrett is medical director of the Center for Heart and Vascular Health at the Christiana Care Health System. He spent 17 years at the Mayo Clinic, clinic excuse me, and was a member of the team of physicians who first performed minimally invasive heart procedures there. He joins us on the phone from Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, Dr. Garrett, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you and what are you seeing when it comes to COVID-19 and your patients? Well, thanks for having me with you today. It's a pleasure. Uh, Of course, we're all struggling here to stay ahead of this. And uh, the good news is I think that in most communities, we're getting to a place where the, the peak of this resurgence period is, is coming into focus, and now as we start to roll out vaccines, as you were just discussing, we're, we're optimistic that we're going to get control of this. But, of course, we have many weeks, probably many months ahead of us to still manage this disease. What do you mean when you say many weeks, many months? I mean, are we talking like um, return to normalcy at the end of the summer? Are we, am I going to be able to see my parents at the beginning of the summer? What's going on here? Yeah, you know, at this point, really, it's anybody's guess, as you know. But what we do have is a pledge from government officials, both the current administration and the incoming administration, to accelerate the rollout of the current stock of vaccinations, and that's very good news. Of course, we have to assure that we reserve enough to be sure everybody gets not one but two injections. And then, importantly, we have to continue production uh, so that we, as we use up the uh, supply currently, that, that we can replace it at a rate that's needed. Right. The U.S. All government... The, the are that we are going to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, the U.S. government now wanting to offer vaccines to millions more Americans. Uh, and so we're talking about, you know, reducing the age and, and opening it up. We're now clearing a path for about 128 million more Americans to be vaccinated. Sounds good, right? Opening it up. But at the same time, I think now we're like, wait a minute, do we have enough supply there? What are you hearing on that front? Well, I think we're hearing the same thing you are. We don't have any special conduit into the government administrative uh, leaders here, and they're really the ones who are in charge. I think the uh, War Production Act is is obviously a very important lever that's at the disposal of the administration to see to it that we can keep up production as needed, and we're all hoping that that happens quickly. But it hasn't so far, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's That's been I think that's been a real challenge for for Americans. I mean, I know from my own perspective, just trying to think about what a realistic timeline here is for widespread vaccination. Here we are in, in January. It's been almost a year since th- this pandemic has absolutely changed the way that we live and changed the way that we work and changed the way that we travel. And we still don't know when we are going to see widespread inoculation. 
And I, and I think it's just, a, I think it's difficult for Americans. I mean, we ask, we have this conversation every day. We ask questions like, what can we do to, to stop the spread until we get vaccinated? And, you know, we hear the same thing over and over again, but it's, it's not working because yesterday was another record for deaths. Yeah, and you know, um, one of the parts of the conversation that I think hasn't gotten enough attention is that we, we talk about the the excess mortality that's occurred in 2020 as a result of this COVID-19 mm. pandemic. And typically what we're doing is we're counting up the number of people we know to have died as a direct result of being infected. Mm. And that's tragic. And the number is huge, as you know, over the 300,000 uh, estimate uh, that was made early in 2020. We exceeded that. And yet the, the part of the conversation that I don't, we focus on that. those deaths that we know to be to have occurred in excess of expectations, but which are not attributable directly to a COVID-19 infection. Well, well, why would that happen? Well, it's happened because COVID-19, in addition to making a whole lot of people very sick, has disrupted the usual provision of care for people with chronic conditions, and that's allowed them to de- decline and deteriorate, and in some cases, die. The Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention that I work with closely conducted a survey in March of 2020 and found that uh, an alarming percentage of people said that even if they thought they were having a stroke or a heart attack, they would not go to a hospital because mm. they were so afraid. Right. Well, that obviously is, is a, a very dangerous proposition. And indeed, we now know that many people did die as a consequence of delay of care. We repeated a survey in December and found that there have been improvements and fewer people are saying that they would be quite as reluctant. But still, one in four Americans say they're still so afraid of COVID-19, they won't even see their regular doctor in a regular doctor's appointment. And if you look at respondents who are African-American or Latino, that number jumps to 45%. So we clearly have a lot of work yet to do to convince Americans that it's safe to remain engaged in routine health care, which we know is the key to surviving heart and vascular disease. Dr. Garrett, one thing that I'm curious about is the financial strain that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on healthcare systems. What are the changes that you've had to make at the Center for Heart and Vascular Health, the Christiana Care Health System, because of the different ways that you guys are prioritizing care? Well, you know, of course, it was a it was a very substantial financial blow for healthcare systems across America when the when the pandemic broke out, and that was in large measure because the the United States uh, health system had to respond what it saw happening in places like New York City, which became quickly overrun with COVID nineteen victims. In order to prepare for that in every community in America, then hospitals went about emptying out their hospitals. They stopped doing usual work. No more hip replacements. No more elective procedures. Was that the right thing to do at the time? Yes. I think at that moment it was absolutely the right thing to do because no one knew what was coming. Uh, So we had to prepare for the worst-case scenario, and we did. Now, happily, most communities didn't suffer to the degree that New York City did, and we learned then through the spring and summer that, indeed, we didn't have to empty out all the beds. We could continue to provide normal services just to care for neighbors in our communities and deliver the care that they needed while also taking care of all the COVID-19 patients. So we've, we've learned those lessons, and at Christiana Care, like other health systems, we've now remodeled our care delivery plan to accommodate both a large number of COVID-19 patients and also be able to sustain care delivery for patients in need of other services. So how do you do that safely? Well, you know, it's actually not as hard as you might imagine. 
you got to remember, healthcare has been in the business of taking care of people around infectious diseases for hundreds of years. We we know how to do this safely. Of course, when you have a brand new novel infectious agent like COVID-19 breakthrough and you don't know how overwhelmed you might be, you pull out all the stops to prepare for the worst, as mentioned. But now we understand what the magnitude of the of the resurgence is likely to be for us in our community, and we, of course, understand what safeguards need to be in place to take care of COVID and non-COVID patients, not quite side by side, that's right. a bit of hyperbole, but at, in, in the same setting, in the same building, sometimes even on the same hospital floors. And we, we can do that safely, and we are doing that safely. So there's obviously the health of your patients, COVID and non-COVID, that you guys are certainly focused on at this point. There's also the health of, you know, your institution. And Bloomberg has done so much reporting. Uh, Back in April, we had stories about hospitals racing to secure big credit lifelines from Wall Street. And and we're not talking about just smaller institutions, but like New York Presbyterian Hospital. Financially, there's been some strains, too, because people aren't doing those, you know, kind of routine procedures. How strained are you guys feeling financially? And I know you can't speak for the hospital overall, but you are director of your particular area and probably see a lot of what's happening or not happening and and the strains as a result. Sure, and I think it's fair to say that heart and vascular services in the healthcare system are an important component to the vitality of the organization. Uh, And I will say that at the onset of this pandemic, we at Christiana Care here, uh, I, I emptied out every inpatient bed that I had for heart and vascular care in order to be ready to take care of, a, of an overwhelming pandemic. And it was the right thing to do. It came with financial consequences, but we prepared. We, we were prepared to face that. Now, of course, we don't have to do that. And although one of uh, four floors dedicated to heart and vascular care is still fully dedicated to COVID care currently, one, one of four heart and vascular floors, the floors are operating and they're providing services in a usual amount, not at 100% of where we were last year, and certainly not where we would like to be. But more important even than the financial uh, balance of this, we want to be sure that we're providing the services that are needed by our community. And and that we feel we are able to meet today. Um, Dr. Garrett, have you, I just want to end with this. We don't have much time. Um, Have you taken the vaccine yet? Yes, I happily got my first shot uh, about a week and a half ago, and I can't wait to get the next. All right, there it is. All right, I can't know. wait either to get my first. <laughs> good to know. That will be. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> sooner, sooner, hopefully, rather than later. Dr. Kurt Garrett, thank you so much. Medical Director of the Center for Heart and Vascular Health at the Christiana Care Health System, uh, joining us on the phone from Wilmington, Delaware. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, this week's cover story is about the love affair between Elon Musk and China. So far, so good. And yet, time will tell longer term. Let's hear more, though, with Bloomberg Business Week features editor Max Shafkin. He's one of the editors on this story. He's on the phone in Queens, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the Axis Line in Brooklyn. I should point out several reporters contributing uh, to this story, including Hayes Fan, who's a member of Bloomberg News' Beijing Bureau, who contributed before being detained by Chinese authorities in December. So we did want to put that out there. Um, It's an important story, and I feel like that note, in terms of our reporters, just reminds us of kind of the love affair and the conflict that we kind of have uh, with China constantly here, including potentially maybe, Joel, uh, Elon Musk and Tesla going forward. Yeah, and this story is a, a real repeating, uh, a real uh, reporting um, feat, yeah. and the the story is ultimately about how Tesla 
um, and China find themselves in this little love affair. And um, uh, the, hence why our cover line is China's favorite capitalist. And that refers to uh, Elon Musk. And China has really given Tesla just an amazing amount of autonomy that most Western companies don't enjoy um, when they do business in China. And it's been rewarded um, by being able to have this autonomy. And Tesla has behaved basically by, by having its own Tesla Chinese operation basically become almost uh, autonomous within um, within Tesla itself, um, but you know what what re this really comes down to is you know what's in it for China here, and I'll bring Max in on that note. You know one of the things that um, China's been able to accomplish here is to almost use Tesla as uh, you know like almost like a whipping uh, agent that it can kind of kick the rest of its EV aspirations into line with Max, what what is the end game, um, both for, for Elon and, and for China, do you think? So on, on the China side, uh, there, there are a few things. So, so one, as you said, uh, Chinese government is very committed to electric vehicles. So, so that means that, you know, there are a, a zillion sort of incentives uh, for purchasers of electric cars, as well as sort of disincentives, taxes, and that sort of thing on those who want to purchase um, uh, you know, conventional vehicles, gas-powered vehicles. So, so China's got this idea. You know, this is this is part of its of, of the sort of grand plan is is to create this gigantic um, electric car industry. And you know, from the sort of Chinese economic policymaker point of view, having Tesla in the country, especially and especially having a Tesla factory in the country, and and that's that's one of the ways in which they they really help Tesla. You know, is is, is a boon to to China because. Um, you know, it's, it's not just the factory, it's the supply chain. So on one hand, like Tesla brings added competition. Maybe that gives a, a sort of kick to the other Chinese uh, electric car makers. But it also creates this supply chain where you have the, the people who supply batteries, the people who supply brakes, you know, uh, software, whatever. Like all of that gets fed into this, this factory in China, and, and that helps the local economy. Um, you know, on the Tesla side, it's kind of the same thing, which is that this is a big, uh, this is a growth market. It's it's arguably, um, you know, the most important uh, electric vehicle market. It's it's where right now, at least, you know, Tesla's growth is going to come from. And uh, w w what sort of makes this in interesting is that you know, Elon Musk has been able. It's a really underappreciated part of about Elon Musk is that he's he's very good at politics. Um, you know, at a time when. You know, there's been this trade war when when lots of other companies have have struggled with China. He's been able to kind of figure out a way to work it so that he's able to, to open this factory, make uh, Beijing happy, uh, and, and and sort of do do a lot of business. The, the risk, of course, is that really at any time, you know, that the the scales could change and China could uh, create additional restrictions or do all sorts of stuff that would make Tesla's life not so great. Could. Do other companies, can other companies learn from what Elon Musk has, has done in China, how Elon Musk has been able to succeed in a place where so many American companies haven't been able to? Because they have to be so jealous, Max, because it's been so hard for everybody else and it's taken a long time to kind of get any kind of foothold there. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Tesla has certain things going for it that, that Elon was able to, to take advantage of. And I, I don't know that this is... I'm not sure there's a, a sort of a, like a how-to lesson here, to be honest, because um, Joel kind of hinted at this, but having 
Elon Musk open a factory in China has not just economic value to uh, to Beijing, it has kind of propaganda value. You know, at a time when, you know, when sort of American companies are dealing with, you know, lots of hostility, when, when, it, when there's this trade war going on with Trump, um, Elon Musk was able to sort of figure that out, right? He, he was able to ask for more than pretty much anyone could ask for. And he, he got something that no other car company had gotten, uh, you know, to date, which is trying to change the rules on um, sort of foreign ownership. Uh, and, and Tesla used that to allow it to, to have, you know, 100% ownership of its, uh, of its joint venture. So I don't think this is a, a case of, of, of Musk doing something that, you know, other companies could, could, could emulate. It's, it's more a case of Musk having things that China wanted. I think that's just to underscore that, you know, no other uh, foreign company has ever been able to have um, that deal struck that Elon got that, you know, instead of having a joint venture, which is usually, you know, a a Chinese owned company will have to have a stake in whatever that factory was. Elon got something that the Chinese have never given anyone else, which is he got to own that. that and, and with that came even more f- uh, floods of Chinese backing. So it really was you know, a subsidized venture. And that is something that, to Max's point, I, I don't know if you can really have um, any more uh, how-to lessons than that. And it was because, I think, and to give you a number here, like at one point China's had as many as 500 electric vehicle startups and when you bring in a car manufacturer like Tesla that has that Western appeal, it allows you to start having a, a, a switch to basically say we can like really bring our, our EV, domestic EV manufacturers into line here. And, and Max, that, I guess that's the thing I just wanted to bring it back to you to, as we wrap here is, you know, it does incentivize – uh, Chinese manufacturers to to get their stuff together. So what what does that competition end up looking like potentially for Tesla? And Max just got about 25 seconds. Yeah, so it's going to be tight. There are lots of companies there and um, and they're making products that are, are good and that are competitive and in some cases cheaper than Tesla's. The thing is, you know, none of them have that Tesla luster. I mean, this is a brand like Apple and that, you know, is going to mean a lot to consumers all over the world, including in China. Well, I love the last line in the story. A Shanghai-based consultant said, Tesla got all of this because it was in China's interest for Tesla to have it. It's a great story. Deep, deep, deep dive. All right, guys, thank you so much. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Max Chafkin, one of the editors on this story over at Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us on the phone. This is Bloomberg Businessweek with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. A headline crossing. Uh, U.S. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying, uh, that he's uh, he's telling the GOP is no, no decision has been made on how he will vote. He actually put out a statement, Tim. Yeah, his statement says, quote, while the press has been full of speculation, I have not made a final decision on how it will vote. And I intend to listen to the legal arguments when they are presented to the Senate. But, Carol, I, I think it's notable that McConnell is not coming out right now and saying, no, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. And we heard that from uh, our own team too, uh, weighing in who covers the White House, uh, this whole idea that, you know, that's a big deal that what we got from Mitch McConnell last night, the New York Times reporting on it, it is a big deal. As the House votes on impeachment, uh, at issue, though, 
ultimately, Tim, and you and I have talked about this a lot, are President Trump's actions and words, in particular those in the social media world. There's a company that tracks toxicity on social media. Uh, May Habib is the co-founder and CEO of Writer. It's an AI and NLP, which I now know stands for Neuro Linguistic <laughs> Programming Company. Learn something every day. She joins us on the phone in San Francisco where the company is based. May, so good to have you with Tim and myself. Just quickly, briefly, for our audience, exactly what you guys are doing on a regular basis. Good morning, Carol. Um, well, it's actually uh, natural language processing, the other NLP. Uh, but what wow. we do is gotcha. <laughs> we are an AI writing assistant, so we help correct uh, language. And uh, in addition to stylistic and grammar uh, uh, type corrections, um, we will also correct in what we call healthy uh, communication. And uh, that's a lot of you know, uh, stripping out passive aggressive language and toxic language, mainly for a uh, a, a workplace uh, use case. Uh, so, for a company who's got a website, right, and is doing things yeah. up, that's what you're that's what you're going through. You're making sure that their message comes across in a you know non toxic way. Yep. In addition to emails they may send their customers or chats in between colleagues, uh, but we basically kind of pointed this very powerful technology at the Twitter stream um, to some interesting results. Yeah, and, and one thing that is really fascinating about this is you've been analyzing tweets uh, since the election this fall, including tweets from President Trump, from uh, President Obama, and from President-elect Joe Biden. And I was surprised to see um, that Obama's tweets, even though they have been relatively muted, they've come out strongly against the events on Capitol Hill. You said that 23% of his tweets last Friday were classified as toxic. Between, compared to his daily average of less than 10%. I was surprised to see that because I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't think of uh, President Obama's tweets as toxic. Explain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we tried to build was a, a data set where um, inflammatory language um, on both sides of a debate um, is flagged. And, you know, aggressive posturing, aggressive language uh, is what gets uh, uh, flagged. And, uh, uh, you know, President Obama uh, was absolutely very forceful in his condemnation, and that's what we picked up on. Um, and, uh, you know, even even if you compare it to the ways in which uh, uh, Biden condemned, um, there was, you know, different, uh, different words chosen. Um, uh, now, of course, that makes sense politically, right? Uh, one is a former president, one is an incoming president um, for whom um, uniting uh, both sides of the country is something that he's wanted to do. Uh, but, and both are in stark contrast to the language that, you know, Trump uses well, on a regular basis. I want to ask you about that, but what makes something toxic? Is it using caps? Is it using exclamation points? What, you know, makes something toxic? It's absolutely all of the above, Carol. So um, our models take into account uh, punctuation, uh, diction, syntax, um, and then the actual words. So, um, you know, stolen, uh, if it is in all caps, uh, rigged, regardless of how you write it, fight, uh, regardless of how you write it. Um, and then uh, things that are, you know, verifiably um, untrue, um, you know, are also part of um, what gets flagged as, as toxic. So what did you find when you tracked it or, or, you know, tracked what President Trump has put out there? So there were, there were some interesting findings. The first, um, overall, on January 6th, all of Twitter was quite toxic. Um, so 32% of all of Twitter um, was uh, contained inflammatory, of all tweets contained inflammatory um, language. What was really interesting is Trump's contribution to that. Now, remember, 
he had 88 million followers and and beyond just kind of his immediate reach uh things were ample things that trump tweeted were amplified by virtue of just the degree to which he gets liked and and retweeted um and so by by virtue of those 88 million followers what we found um was language amplified by him which includes you know steal the steal the word fight the word rigged um were actually present in almost half of all toxic tweets on the six across the entire twitter stream um which is which is really astounding i mean um you know there are a lot of ways that people are looking at his ban from Twitter and, and uh, you know, what's being called his deplatformization across all of tech um, and the reckoning for Silicon Valley and the First Amendment is, is really just beginning. Right. Mm. Um, May, it, May it, just yeah. get about 30 seconds. I mean, in yeah. general, I don't know if you guys have gone back the last few years, and I'm not trying to make this a President Trump thing, but in general, have we yeah. seen the level of toxic, toxicity overall going up on social media? And my apologies, we do only have about 25 seconds. Yes, uh, it is uh, definitely something that um, has been going up since the beginning of time, um, and the, you know the valley has definitely has definitely has um, a role to play in, in bringing that all down. Well, really, really interesting uh, to get this from you. So, thank you so much for joining us, Mehabib, co-founder and CEO of Writer. It is an AI and L- NLP, which I now know is natural linguistic programming. So, I'm natural just, language processing. Oh, see, <laughs> I'm giving up. I'm giving up when it comes to acronyms. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.